It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is the Fox News Rundown Extra. I'm Alex Hogan. For more than a decade, the country has been intrigued by the mysterious and brutal murders known as the Gilgo Beach serial killings. Intrigue turned to shock and relief earlier this month when authorities announced the arrest of a suspect. The story begins back in 2010. That's when human remains were found on Gilgo Beach, Long Island in New York. Law enforcement found the remains of Melissa Bartholomew and then Amberlyn Costello, Megan Waterman and Maureen Brainard Barnes. All of them were women in their 20s who were working as escorts. Six other bodies were also found, but the investigation ran dry for years until now. 59-year-old Rex Hureman is in custody, and he's linked to three of those killings. Law enforcement actually matched his DNA from a leftover pizza crust that he tossed out to a hair found on a victim. Hureman says that he is innocent. But days after the arrest, we spoke with Ray Tierney. He's the district attorney of Suffolk County who ran the task force, which eventually identified Hureman. Tierney discussed how nearly 100 law enforcement officers worked together for years on this case. He explains the critical pieces of evidence that they found and the hope that bringing this alleged suspect to justice will eventually bring peace and comfort and closure to the victim's families. We made edits for time and thought you might like to hear our entire conversation with Ray Tierney and learn about the case against Rex Hewerman. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the weekday Fox News Rundown podcast. Now, here is Suffolk County District Attorney Ray Tierney on the Fox News Rundown Extra. Let's, let's start about looking at this case. I think there's the perception that it had largely run dry. So then what changed for us to be here where we are today? Well, I took office as district attorney in uh, January of 2022. And so what we did is we formed a task force and we brought in investigators from a whole host of agencies working with our investigators and my prosecutors, uh, and we did a soup-to-nuts reevaluation of the case. And I think when people look at the steps that it took to get here, there's maybe this perception that it's not possible to get away with murder anymore because of the DNA capabilities that we have, the technology that we have. So in this case, what are some of the mistakes that you think this murderer made? Well, you know, as you said, I don't think it's so much mistakes. It's just you leave a digital fingerprint or a forensic fingerprint in this world. So with regard to the four bodies, there were five hairs that were left on three of the victims. Uh, The phone evidence, he used burn of phones, so you couldn't, uh, uh, you know, trace the phones from the from the instrument, uh, you know, through subscription or whatever. But when you make a phone call, your location is given away. So we had cell site location evidence. Uh, We had the uh, DNA evidence. And we had some, you know, uh, eyewitness evidence as well with regard to him visiting the last victim 
on the night before she died. Now, what about the other bodies? Is there potential evidence? Are there hints that there could be links there to these other murders? So we we investigated what is known as the Gilgo Four, and these were four women uh, who, you know, were, were prostitutes. They worked a similar way. They were all uh, petite, uh, small uh, women. They were left in the same... Uh, a, a, uh, they were bound, this, so they were left in the same condition. Um, the killer used four separate uh, burner phones to contact them prior to their murders. So these uh, murders were clearly related. Uh, we, st- we started, I started my o- in the office in January of 22. Um, we started the fa- task force February of 2022. Uh, six weeks later, we identified him. The, as a suspect for the first time. So then we ran with these murders. Um, so we're, we've done that, and we're going to continue the investigation, and it's going to sp- expand out from there. Were there any striking differences that you noticed in the manners in which they might have been found or any details that you, as uh, someone with a very good eye, specifically le- learning all of this and looking at all of these different types of cases, was there anything different in these murders? No, I, I think the methodology with regard to these four murders were incredibly similar. Um, and, you know, he purchased the burner phone. He used it primarily to contact the victims. Once the victims were lured and, uh, you know, murdered, unfortunately, the, the, he stopped using those burner phones. So he was, was disciplined in, you know, the manner of the killing, and he had the same methodology. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Now, looking at someone who potentially could have could have conducted these types of atrocious murders, we know that the suspect was an architect. He's a father. Do you think that people involved in his life had any indication, or is this potentially a case of someone who is fully able to conceal what possibly was done here? Uh, There's certainly no indication that anyone knew what was going on, uh, certainly not his family members. I think this is an instance where this defendant lived a double life, uh, and there was a side of himself that he showed to the public, and then there was this other side which he desperately tried to keep hidden. And is that similar to what you see when you're conducting cases that even surround murderers or serial killers of separating these two very different sides of themselves? And and how easy psychologically in your investigations do you see that someone is able to do that? Well, certainly uh, you see it it with serial killers, but even, you know, like with drug dealers or something, they, they... People who are engaged in illegal conduct have an ability to hide that from the rest of the world, and and that's, you know, why they're able to do what they do. What were some of the hurdles in recent months that maybe prevented this from coming to light and prevented this arrest that we saw last week um, from happening sooner? Were there any difficulties that you found with regards to technology, those burner phones, finally collecting the DNA evidence? I think the most difficult thing for us, because we came in January of 2022, so we were 
12 years behind. So there was an incredible amount of data that we had to look at and evaluate, which we did. And then as we went forward, a lot of the evidence that maybe we would have liked to have seen was not there. So those were, those were challenges, but that's what cold case work is. So we worked on it and, uh, you know, we battled through it and we had great investigators working with prosecutors to really uh, get the subpoenas and search warrants out. So whatever information still existed, we were able to obtain. How many people are involved in this case when you talk about the task force? I mean, how many people are devoting their time day in, day out to finally catching the person responsible for these murders? So there's a core group of organizations. We have my office, the Suffolk County DA's office. We have the Suffolk County Police Department. We have the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office. We have the New York State Police uh, Department, as well as the FBI. And, you know, for the task force itself, there's, uh, you know, a one or two, three individuals uh, from each organization, probably more from the PD in my organization, um, who were working every day. But then when you start talking about surveillance, uh, for forensic examination, it could, you know, hundreds of people are working on it. This takedown involved over 100 people. Wow. And for the families who for years have been hoping for some clarity about what took place and some answers and, and hopefully some closure for them. This must be a very painful time to have all of this brought to light again. Were any of the families or loved ones or, or witnesses very involved in helping give you some of the answers that you needed in this investigation? So these family members are just extraordinary. I actually reached out to them before I took office in January of 2022. So and at that point, they're just names in a report, entries in a blotter, what have you. But then when you meet them and you see their pain and you see their frustration at not having answers. So after a while, after being able to give them those answers, it's extremely rewarding. And I know that there's been a large push from law enforcement advocating that if anyone knows anything, if anyone has any information, if they had any interactions with this person that they should come forward, why Why is that needed so desperately right now ahead of this potentially going to a trial? So the way you do an, uh, an investigation like this is you start out through the grand jury. Good thing about the grand jury is it's secret. So nobody knows what you're doing. So you're able to operate with anonymity the target doesn't realize he's being investigated, so his guard is down. So you do that for a while. Once you obtain the evidence, you move to arrest. And then the arrest is a watershed moment because then what you do is you come public, you execute search warrants, you're trying to get as much evidence as possible. But now that the cat is out of the bag, you talk to the public and you ask them, you know, what information do you have? And that's, you know, that will be fruitful ordinarily. And going into this case at the beginning when your task force was created, when you started really looking at this, did you have any idea who the suspect was? Was he known to police? Can you give us a little bit more color about who this person was and what we knew about him then versus now? So we started January of 2022, um, and we formed the fast the the task force February 1st um, and then six weeks later 
we identified this defendant as a suspect in this case for the first time. So prior to us, nobody knew about him at all. We learned about him six weeks after the formation of the task force, and from there, the information just flew, and the investigation flew. And the, as we learned more, the pace got quicker and quicker and quicker. In terms of other crimes that you've covered and, and cases investigated, did anything that Hewerman do surprise you in terms of uh, potentially as, as horrible as it might have been, the intellect used to cover his tracks? You know, I've, I've been a prosecutor for about 30 years. I did MS-13 cases, Colombian uh, narcotics cases, uh, political corruption cases. So nothing really surprises you. Um, I think what is, you know, noteworthy is his ability to have this uh, double life. And moving forward, where does it go from here? I think the media coverage, of course, is such an interest because of how brutal this was and how gut-wrenching this must be for all of the families. But where does this go in terms of, of moving this forward, finding the culprit of, of these other killings? Where do you see this case moving? So... You know, again, the water, uh, the arrest is a watershed. Mm -hmm. So we have to change our approach. He is now uh, charged with three murders, Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. That court case is going to continue, so we need to prepare for that. But also with this arrest, we've got a ton of evidence that we need to evaluate, and we need to continue to look, evaluate that evidence and also to investigate the other cases in the area. Did the suspect seem surprised when he was arrested? Was there any indication of the emotion behind those moments and whether it seemed to you from his perspective that he knew he had been caught or was this a shock to him? He seemed to be very surprised, which we were satisfied with because we were afraid that uh, if our investigation leaked out, he would... Uh, eliminate evidence, you know, uh, get rid of stuff. So we were happy with the fact that he appeared surprised. And so would you say that the, the finding of the pizza box, was that one of those milestone moments that led to be finally being able to make this arrest? Well, I think what happened was uh, we looked at, on March 14th, we learned that he, he owned that avalanche we also learned that he matched the very unique physical description of the person who was with the victim, Amber Costello. We then learned that he lived in this small area in Massapequa Park where, where the FBI was interested in with regard to phone loose. Furthermore, we learned that he worked in this area in Midtown Manhattan, which was an area of interest by the FBI uh, regarding phone use. So now... We're like, wow, this is this is this is good. So we have to continue to make these associations. So what we did then is we went back to the crime scene and there were five hairs that were suitable for mitochondrial DNA. But up to this point, we didn't have a, a profile to compare it to. So we had to go out and get his profile. And the way we did that is by following him and taking an abandonment sample. And we got one of those samples not only from him, but from some of his family members, and that's why the DNA profiles that were obtained from the hairs at the crime scene matched not only 
the DNA profile of the defendant, but his wife as well. I think the DNA aspect is so fascinating for so many of our viewers of the technology involved and how long it, it can last, that you could find a piece of evidence years and years ago and it would still be able to hold up. Uh, can you talk us through some of the technology that's used today for some of these investigations? Sure. And specifically with regard to this case, uh, these young women died between July of 2007 and September of 2010. They weren't found until December of 2010. So they're out in a very rugged, uh, in the elements, uh, in a very rugged uh, environment. So when you look forensically, there wasn't really anything other than hair fibers. And hair fibers are very hardy. The DNA is protected by the, the enamel on the outside of the hair. So the only thing we really had to look at was these... Um, these hairs, but traditional DNA testing wouldn't wouldn't be suitable. So we had to turn to mitochondrial DNA testing. And can you explain the difference there between regular testing, mitochondrial testing? Sure. Uh, nuclear or you know conventional DNA testing, uh, you get a set of genes from your mom and your dad. With regard to mitochondrial DNA, you only get it from your mom. Uh, and it's, uh, it's contained within the mitochondria of the cell. So it's not quite, the numbers aren't as quite as discriminating as uh, nuclear DNA, but because it's encased in this hair, it's much more hardy and will survive, you know, tough environments. Now, looking at all of the work that went into uh, bringing this arrest and all of this taking place in the last week, it must be a tremendous moment of, of pride and relief for your team and also to be able to give that clarity to these families. Yeah, you know, once we identified him in March, it's been frenetic. You know, we've been really working hard. Uh, there's a lot of concern, a lot of worry uh, is, uh, you know, public safety going to be compromised? Is our investigation going to become known? So there's constant worry. Um, the We were going to take down the case later in the week originally. We decided to move it up. Uh, so that was, you know, there was a lot involved in that. Um, but after it's all over... Making you know, that kind of decision, why why move it up? Was there a, the potential of him finding out? Um, there's always the potential of him finding out or getting it leaked to the media. Uh, there's also the concern for public safety. Um, and earlier, the, the, the decision not to do it is easy because you don't have enough evidence. But once you start to obtain that evidence, now the balance starts to shift between investigation and arrest. And we decided, you know, Thursday, it's, this is the time, so let's do it. So, so we did it. Um, and, you know, the opportunity to give a little bit of answers to the victims is very gratifying. But these are just allegations. This is just the beginning. Uh, and so there is so much more work to be done. Well, Ray Tierney, District Attorney of Suffolk County, thank you so much for your time for explaining everything about where we are in this stage. And we will continue to follow this story. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you again.
You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.